You're not a regular MD, are you? Of course not. But anything my patients reveal to me is as sacred as though it were given under the seal of the confessional. Is that clear? All right, all right. You don't have to get on a soapbox. I'm going to be strictly on the level about this whole thing myself. Will you get out of here? I should have known you were that kind uh -oh. of a... It takes one to catch one. What is your name? Stanton Carlisle. Are you a true medium? Yes, I am. Mr. Carlisle? Doctor, how about that? Please lie down. Can you read minds? Yes, I can. Under the right circumstances. It's ticklish business any way you look at it. Come on, we'll stick together. special episode of ticklish business i'm Kristen once again with kim and samantha and we are doing this special episode geared all around to the now oscar nominated remake of nightmare alley so we're going to be talking about the 2021 guillermo del toro directed version as well as the original film from 1947 starring samantha's beloved tyrone power so Nightmare Alley, this is the story of Stanton Carlisle played in 47 by Turn Power in 2021 by Bradley Cooper, who stumbles onto a group of circus people and is fascinated by the geek, which is the guy that bites the heads off chickens. And you get that part early in the movie and you are trying to figure out how that all plays into things as he slowly rises up the ranks of being a magician slash psychic. I'm assuming the 1947 version of Kreskin, if you are a Johnny Carson person, and eventually how he devolves into murder and sin and cynicalness, all of that. I come at these movies, both of them really, from the same feeling, which is that I feel I should like these a lot more than I do. And I say that for different reasons for each of these films. So the original 1947 Nightmare Alley, I've seen it several times, and I do like a lot of it. Spoiler alert, I like it a little bit more than I like the remake, but only by a little, small margin. But I think that the reason I come to the original Nightmare Alley with just kind of a mixed thought on it is it is hampered by the production code. But that same issue that you would think would be fixed in 21, it didn't fix it for me. So I don't really know why I'm generally just meh on the topic of Nightmare Alley. But in 21, all of the things that I thought would be solved in terms of you can curse, you can have nudity, you can have more violence. I had far more issues. If I'm counting up the things that I disliked about the original versus the things I disliked in the remake, I had far more things I disliked in the remake than I disliked in the original. But at the same time, I still don't like either movie. This is the original Nightmare Alley. It's not a movie I take out and I necessarily want to watch over and over again. I come at this from being really, really familiar, obviously, with the original because in my opinion, this is my favorite, or I wouldn't say my favorite performance of my favorite actor, Tyrone Power, but it's objectively his best performance. And I know how proud Ty was of making it too. So I think that really skews my opinion of this remake. 
because when I found out that Bradley Cooper was cast, who I don't really care for, hey, if Leo was cast, I would feel very differently about all of this. I can't wait to talk about the Ty versus B Coop dynamic here because I feel that both movies have the same concept which is we're taking a performer that had a very ingrained persona and we're trying to change it but the persona and the creation of acting to be a Ty Power in 47 is vastly different than to be a Bradley Cooper in 2021. That's a very fair point. We sort of talked about this in our sexiness episode where a lot of modern actors are just jumped from genre to genre Role to role, they'll lose weight for a role, then they'll snap and gain weight for a role. No two films are ever the same. Whereas Tyrone Power was a product of the studio system and he was forced to make the exact same type of film over and over again that the studio wanted him to make. So for him to turn around and then do this was such a big feat at the time and one that he was never appropriately recognized for, in my opinion, but I'm also incredibly biased. (laughs) Bradley Cooper is lucky. He came about probably the right time for somebody like him. I can't think of him much before the Hangover films and name roles. I will and not have Will Tip and Alias Erasure on this podcast. He's in a Sex in the City, yes. If we're thinking name feature roles, he could have very easily been stuck in parts like that. And if his career had existed, probably as a feature actor, 15, I'd say 20 years ago, he would have been. But he was very quick at jumping out of those. He's, you know, doing films like this, doing Silver Linings Playbook. He's been throwing himself into all those kind of Oscar Beatty roles to try and prove he's more than just the body sex comedy guy. And I think he's a prime example, Samantha, of what you talk about. He's what power could have been had they given power the flexibility to actually get out and spread his wings more than he was allowed. I want to put a pin in the B-Coop-Ty Power debate for a second, because I want Kim's thoughts, since Samantha and I both gave ours, just in general. What do you feel about Nightmare Alley, both the original and the remake? Slightly similar places, you Kristen. I came to the 47 very late. I think I enjoyed it more. I enjoy is a strong word because it's a very dark film. It's a very dark sit. It's a very challenging sit. But I also, I gave it four stars. It's, to me, it's a very memorable film. It's a very beautifully made film. It moved me more. That being said, when I came to the 2021, I was very excited, but with mixed in with a little bit of dread. But with somebody like Del Toro, with somebody with the stills that we saw coming out, this should have been a film that, like some of the other classic film kind of remakes we've had, this should be one that catered specifically for people like me, people like us. This should have been a slam dunk. And I enjoyed it a lot less than I was expecting to. I had some definite problems with it. I had some struggles as I watched it. And it kind of surprised the heck out of me because I was, and I keep hearing very good things about it. And I just found it a struggle all the way around. So I definitely prefer 47 to 21. Before we get into it, here is a short little ad for our Patreon. If you are a fan of old Hollywood, classic entertainment, and the joy of pop culture history in all its forms, please subscribe to our Patreon page like these wonderful people. Christine Meyer, Danny, David Floyd, Jacob Haller, MCF, and Rachel Kramarchuk. 
Our Patreon website is located at patreon.com slash ticklishbiz. Be sure to take a look at our other channels as well. We're on Twitter at ticklish underscore biz, as well as YouTube and Instagram. Keep an eye out for lots of bonus content coming soon. Now, back to the show. I'm going to say that I think the biggest problem, if I have to put a finger on the biggest problem I have with the remake of Nightmare Alley, which again is nominated for an Academy Award, so... Do not take our word for whether it's good or not. The Academy said it's good and they've never been wrong. So my biggest problem is the original 47 movie is an hour and 50 minutes. The remake is two and a half hours. And I can tell you that I felt every single one of those two and a half hours. And I say this a lot about Guillermo del Toro films. They are movies I should love. And they generally are movies that I just think are okay. So case in point, I know a lot of people that love Crimson Peak. Crimson Peak is a beautiful, beautiful film. I think it's perfectly fine. I think that The Shape of Water is a really interesting movie. It's an interesting movie. It's not a movie I want to watch all the time. So I can't think of a Guillermo del Toro movie that I've loved in recent memory. Kronos, I think, is fantastic. If you people are listening and you want to check out some great del Toro, his Spanish language stuff is fantastic. But I think that a lot of the problem that I have with this is when they announced he was doing this, and he's been wanting to do this for a while, right? This is one of his passion projects. They kept emphasizing how it was not a remake of the 47 film. It's an adaptation of the book by William Lindsay Gresham, which I have. I have not read it yet, but I do have the book, which had long been out of print up until this movie came out. So if anything, I thank this movie for bringing the book back into focus. But I always worry that that is the buzzword of creators who say that they want to not necessarily have that hanging over their heads, but also want to do a lot of really weird stuff under the guise of being like, what's in the book? And I felt like a lot of this movie is really interesting in starts and stops. And when it's recreating stuff from the 47 film, I at least had a guidepost to be like, okay, we're moving along. The last 20 minutes, I think are really good. But then there's just so much of watching the camera revel and just how beautiful things are. And they are beautiful, yes, but I actually had the good fortune to see this in a theater at a screening room. And I would have loved to have been able to take some time to maybe pause, get up, go to the bathroom, then revel in the beauty because it's really long. Did the length bother either of you? Am I just being a dirty film watcher who who can't? It completely bothered me. I, I was very aware. I mean, and I was not able to watch it in a theater. I watched it at home, but I will admit I was checking that time and I was checking the time relatively consistently because I, it felt every inch of that two and a half hours. And I was thinking about that again this morning because I was rewatching parts of 47 because that was the one I had not watched in a while. And with 2021 a little fresher in my brain than 47, as I was rewatching 47, I just found myself very aware of 21 was like 47 played at like half speed. It's like, oh, we're here already in 47 when this takes 20 minutes of screen time to get to the same point. We see everything. We spend so much time in places and I didn't necessarily feel like it was completely justified. I would definitely agree. I felt the entirety of its runtime when I watched it for sure. 
I hate to admit, I told, I think both of you before we even started recording that I know the 47 version, like the back of my hand. I've seen it so many times I could very easily, you know, join in on this discussion without seeing it again. But the 2021 version, I still had not seen up until today. And so the fact that I was on a bit of a time crunch watching the 2021 version and feeling every minute of the two hours, 30 minutes, I feel like that had a little something to do with the fact that, you know, I was like, hey, okay, I got things to do. Well, and I think it comes at a detriment to the cast because things are so long that you're really noticing how much short shrift some of the cast gets in the 2021 version. Tony Collette plays the Joan Blondell character, Xena. And honestly, she really feels like a means to an end in the 2021 version because she is how Stanton Carlyle meets the character played by David Strayheron, Pete, who is the mentalist who has the code and gives him the act. So it's not necessarily that they're ingrained in the story, it's just moving the plot. Whereas in the 47 version, because it's shorter, you feel like you're getting more Joan Blondell than maybe you're not actually getting. The real stars of the second half of the movie becomes Kate Blanchett, who plays Dr. Lilith Ritter, which is the Helen Walker character in the 47 version. And I will tell you, I'm a Kate Blanchett fangirl. I would let her stab me in the face. I think she's on another level. There is actors and then there's Kate Blanchett. And she is built for period pieces. The costume she wears in this movie, she, much like Samantha Ellis, who I feel is a time traveler, I'm assuming that you've traveled with Kate Blanchett in time because both of you do not inhabit this world. You are of all times. And I think she fits perfectly in this movie, but she really is like third bill under Rooney Mara and Bradley Cooper. And so I feel that you really do lose some of those great casting moments that you got in the 47 one where you had less time. And so, you know, you you spend a lot of time with the circus. The film feels delineated in 47 very nicely between the circus and Stanton going out on his own. I just have to say, I don't know if I agree with that. Okay, go for it. (laughs) I think one of the things I just had to, I have to interject because my sister and I have discussed this movie at length and the comparisons between the two because I asked her like once she saw the remake in theaters to like gush about it to me because I wasn't 100% sure if I was ever going to see it. So I was like, okay, tell me all the details. Tell me all the differences. And she mentioned that the original, one of the biggest issues with the original, I would also argue, is that we didn't spend enough time in the carnival because there are such few carnival films from that era. And basically, no, this is the first, if only, Carnival Noir. When I watched it, I was so fascinated by that aspect. And that's one of the things that I loved about the original, but I wish that there was more of it in the original. So seeing this, and basically as soon as I knew that Del Toro was attached to remake this, I was like, okay, he's going to put some spooky carnival stuff in this. (laughs) And that's exactly what he did. Kept watching just thinking, God, I wish Del Toro did a modernized version of Freaks from the 30s. That would have been way better by him. I just have to, yeah, I agree. I I think that that would have been really great. I do love that in this new version, there is kind of a sidekick character to Ron Perlman's character, Bruno, who is a little person. And he is not 
something to be made fun of or pitied. He's just one of the side characters in this movie that I really appreciated. So kudos, Del Toro. Yeah, I noticed that too. I was like, okay, there isn't really a character like this in the original, but I agree. Like nothing derogatory is said about him. He's not like othered. He's not even necessarily an attraction that we see. So I think that's really interesting. In a world where we have the greatest showman reminding us that we definitely paid our carnival workers. I did like that we are, you're able to put characters with disabilities in some of these roles and not have to make a big thing. This is your reminder that as much as I love The Greatest Showman, some of its historical stuff is a bit troubling. It was interesting watching this because, like you mentioned, I felt like there was some definite short shifting between the characters. I completely agree. Kate Blanchett was, for me, the star of especially that second half. As I think back here, I remember more from the second half of 21 than I do from the first. But at the same time, how dare we underutilize Tony Collette yet again? We, you know, films just like to not give Tony Collette her due. And to be perfectly honest, I found Rooney Mara boring. Throughout that first half, I was routinely reminded of things that I remembered better and legitimately preferred in 47. How much better, what is it, Colleen Gray? How much better she is in that part? The sheer difference in the screenshot that we always see with the electricity and the costume and how vibrant and interesting that looked in the 1947 version. I just found that dull this time around. I found it unmemorable. I found it boring and was frankly reminded more of the 47 version as I reflected on it because I found out I would rather be watching that one. And so yet we get to the second half and Kate Blanchett was brilliant and vibrant and her delightful, amazing self when I don't have as strong a memory from the end of 47. So it was kind of, there's two distinct halves and it just neither quite gelled for me. I think what the difference and the distinction is between both of these movies is something that I feel like Del Toro tries very hard to emulate and does not always succeed with. And this is a similar criticism lobbed with Crimson Beak which I know is deliberately meant to evoke 1940s gothic melodramas like Dragonwood, is that he has to work with performers that I feel know that time, like the back of their hand. We've talked about this before when we did double features episodes like this, about how some performers just feel a bit too modern. They don't get the cadence. They don't get the feeling. They don't get the tone right. This intangible thing that we can't really explain, but we know that it's lacking. And I felt that on display a lot in the 21 version here. And there's varying levels of where I felt that, but with the supporting cast, especially, I mean, again, Kate Blanchett knows period pieces because she lived in them. I will not believe that she is not a time traveler. She is Doctor Who. So there's that. So of course she's perfect in it, but you, you mentioned Rooney Mara as Molly. And I mean, Molly in both movies is meant to be the nice girl, right? We've seen that. But I think that the 21 version gives her a bit too much backstory and it really makes her this fair maiden character. You learn a lot more about her relationship with Ron Perlman's character, who's like her protector, right? He raised her. And so he doesn't want Stanton to marry her because he knows that he's going to ruin her life. It comes off a bit like, There are two men fighting over the same, you know, sexy lamp type of character. So I felt that she was really muted. She's just there to react 
and be this good conscience for him that he is not listening to. So she's fine, but I think anybody could have played it. You cast Rooney Mara because she's got that wayfish 1940s depression era look. I get it. I get it. It doesn't work. The same with Tony Collette. Tony Collette's done period pieces before. I will not entertain notions of people who tell me she should play Veronica Lake because she got she has the hair. No, don't don't tell me that. I don't want to hear it. And I think Tony Collette really gets short shrift, especially because if you really think of what the Xena character in the original film is, she's similar to Stanton. They're foils almost, and that she gets the game he's playing, and she has not let it corrupt her in the way that she knows it's going to corrupt him. She is the one that lays out the cards and sees the path that he is headed down. And she's not a Cassandra figure in the sense that she's warning him and trying to stop it. It's just like, I'm going to tell you what's up and you can take it or you cannot, but you're an idiot if you don't. I like that element of her. Tony Collette's performance here because of the writing is just kind of like, she's this sad, horny housewife that the minute she meets Bradley Cooper Stanton, she's trying to get with him. And there's everybody's made so much of how Bradley Cooper is nude in this movie. And, you know, there's a weird thing with a bathtub. And I was just like, what is the point? I'm one of those people that like, we need more sex in movies. I say it all the time. But like, what is the point? How does that further her character? She's this sad, depressive woman whose husband's a drunk and she needs an outlet, then nothing ever comes of it as far as we know. Like they have maybe a little fling, but I think there's far more assertion that they are having a long-term affair in the 47 version than they are necessarily in the 2021 version. So the character just feels really underwritten. And it doesn't help that Colette is playing it very modern as well. Whereas David Strayheron, because he is awesome, shout out to my beloved David Strayheron, but he is playing the character very similar to 47 in that it's this kind of drunken Shakespearean tragic character that you're like, oh, I want him to, to succeed. His death in both versions, you really truly feel bad that he is gone. It's not a consistent swath of performances across the board. And I think that is the biggest problem. I would definitely agree with that. Again, my sister kind of briefed me on what I was to expect in the remake. And one of the things that we talked about the most is Molly. I never really liked Colleen Gray's performance in the 1947. I think both she and Helen Walker aren't the best for two very different reasons, but I think Colleen Gray just couldn't act, at least not in this film. I'm going to say the biggest issue I have with the 47 version is I feel like Colleen Gray and Helen Walker look very similar and I always confuse them. The personalities you see are totally different. So what I didn't like about Helen Walker is I think she was too stiff, where I think Kate Blanchett, I think we can agree, fixed that. But Molly, Colleen Gray couldn't act, at least not in this that I saw in the 47 version. And when I found out that Rooney Mara was picked for Molly, I was like, okay, she's also bland, but I think anything could be better. I think Colleen Gray is way prettier, but I think the acting... In Molly is way better. And another one of the huge differences between the films, in my opinion, is that the characters' motivations are all totally changed. I think Molly's motivation is a lot less religious in this version. And it's really, I mean, slight spoiler for people who have not seen the 21, she's leaving him. 
And the 47 version, Molly wouldn't leave him basically at all. That was kind of her whole thing. She's a true believer, exactly, in 47. And you're so right when you talk about something that I feel is missing in the modern version, which is the concept of belief. So much of the 47 version is about people believing in themselves to a disturbing amount. Danton Carlyle in 47 really does believe that he deserves something, right? That he should be celebrated. And Molly is the true believer who is willing to forsake her religion in order to go with him. That's the ultimate proof of that. And then you have the science concept with Helen Walker's character as the antithesis of faith. She is facts and she knows what he's about. And I think that that is a really great mind F of the 47 version is how it plays with psychology and our notion of faith in a time when, if we're talking to people who assume old movies are out of fashion, really wouldn't assume that of classic film of this era. But in 2021, when you would think that that would maybe be a bit more poignant in our era of what we're dealing with right now with science and whatnot, it doesn't really come through. You know, Molly, she goes with him because she loves him. That's it. There's really nothing more to it. And maybe to escape the confinement of Ron Perlman's Bruno. But when she leaves, it's a very modern interpretation, right? Because in 47, because of the production code, she wasn't going to be able to do that as well. And the Cate Blanchett element to it as Lilith, she is there to remind Stanton of all the bad people, right? There is so much that has gone into in the modern version about their rise up the ranks and taking these wealthy men that as Lilith keeps reminding him, if you screw them over, they will come for you like they're gangsters. We took a sharp right into Goodfellas territory over here. I'm not really understanding. It's more of a crime and punishment narrative, which we can talk about the ending and how the movie in 21 ends versus how the movie in 47 ends. But I think that if this is a movie about cynicism and losing one's connection to God, so to speak, in the 47 version, I don't know what the 2021 reminder is. And we can talk about that in a second. I want to talk about Bradley Cooper and Ty. We hinted at it a little bit. And when I talk about my biggest issue with this movie, I know a lot of people say this is Bradley Cooper's best role. He also redid A Star is Born. And we haven't done A Star is Born. I don't really want to. But he's tried to make his transition into serious actor by, I think, deliberately choosing in some instances to play beloved classic film characters, modernize them. That's my theory. And when he did Jackson Maine in the A Star is Born remake, it was, it worked. It worked. I, it went about where I expected late 2000s, uh, 2010s movie about remake of A Star is Born to go. With this I just kept saying, I don't feel intimidated by this guy. I don't feel the venality, the carnality of this performance. Because I know, and Samantha, you can correct me anywhere that I'm wrong, but, you know, Tyrone Power had risen up the ranks of Hollywood playing swashbucklers and romantic leading men. I'm going off of what I've watched, so... (laughs) you're correct but I think the timeline is a little mixed okay so so for me the arc of Ty's career and the reason why I'm I hate to say the reason why I'm correcting you the reason why I'm pointing this out is important is because it really ties into this film specifically so Ty had sort of his rise to fame with the really sappy romantic comedies 
He was beautiful. They wanted to see him kiss a beautiful woman. It was all beautiful. It was all sunshine and roses and laughs. And those were the kinds of movies in the 30s that he would make. And he hated it. (laughs) He didn't like doing it. He wanted something that he could really sink his teeth into and transform himself for. Like a lot of actors today, I think he was really before his time in that respect. And then the war happened and he joined up and he served his country and he returned just a totally different person. And that resulted in his first divorce from his wife, Annabella, who was also a movie star who starred opposite him in Suez. And he was just totally war-torn. Not only did he look older, he looked different, a little too old maybe to play these romantic leads anymore. That was just no longer what he wanted to do. And so he jumped forward and said, I want to do Nightmare Alley. And the studios didn't want to do it. They thought that this was like a crapshoot, but they did. And it didn't do very well. And then after that, you know, he had age and he kept aging. They weren't going to throw him back in the romantic comedies. So they put him in swashbucklers. A lot of them, you know, were kind of B pictures, just things to rake in the dollar on his name, which he had established really well. And a lot of the characters, he was too old to even play at that point, even in Swashbucklers, but that was kind of the genre that he stuck with. I mean, for me, when I think of Ty, I think of something like 1940s Mark of Zorro, which is what I go with. You know, for me, there's this impossible beauty to him, right? This otherworldliness. And I think what was shocking about Nightmare Alley is the fact that he allows that to be this facade, right? He really does show you the double face behind that of, I'm a hot guy, so you should totally trust me, but I'm totally going to screw you over. And that's what happens. And I think that there's an added level to that, maybe subconsciously in the fact that Tyrone Power was trying hard to kind of seduce audiences into believing him in this new type of role so that he could break out. So I think that subconsciously, whether you know the history of him as a performer or not, you can see that he really does, going back into this concept of belief, really does believe. It's a transformation for him of actor and persona. And that creates this character that I think is really compelling. Bradley Cooper, because actors are so different now because they don't have these ingrained, in many instances, kind of personas anymore. I mean, Bradley Cooper is one of those last great movie stars, quote unquote, in the way that like Leonardo DiCaprio is where you don't really know much about him as a person. You know, I don't know what Bradley Cooper likes. I don't know what he does in his free time. I don't believe Bradley Cooper has hobbies. I mean, I don't know. He could plug himself into an outlet at night because he could be a robot. I don't really know much about him as a person. And so for him to play Stanton Carlisle in this maybe because we don't have that history, I felt like the character is not necessarily charming. It's not necessarily intimidating. It's not necessarily aggressive. It just is. And I felt that when he makes these decisions, especially in the last 20 minutes of the movie, where you're supposed to see Stanton's eventual demise, I didn't really buy it because you don't see that carnality of, I will literally stab you in the chest I don't gotta stab you in the back I will stab you in the heart in order to to get what I want I didn't get that that's a real element that is missing in this movie that you sorely need I kept thinking of other actors that I think would be able to have that charming face and then that really dark heart and Bradley Cooper is not one I would have gone with 
I couldn't agree more. That's the biggest thing. And I was going to say that exact same thing too, at some point in this conversation, but the biggest difference in the characterizations of Stan Carlisle to me is I did not get that charming, but evil vibe from Bradley Cooper at all that I totally get from Tyrone Power. And I think that's the genius that Ty brought to that role when he did it in 47. The fact that he was charming and had such good looks that were slightly marred by the war played to his advantage. And Bradley Cooper, there were moments when I was watching the 21 version and I was like, I I kept saying over and over, he's too nice. Why is he so nice? Especially the way, and they even sort of use us to establish his character, the way that he treats the geek towards the beginning of the film. I mean, wants to take him out of the rain and the obvious pity that you see. I literally was like, Trump powers, Stan Carlyle never would have done that. I think too, just a simple distinction in facial expression. If you look at individual photos from Nightmare Alley in 1947, and Tyrone Power is showing you so many different elements of why that face is so compelling. He's smiling. He's doing fun stuff. He's being romantic. He's being frightening. He's being overbearing. You get all of this. Every picture and image I see of Bradley Cooper in this movie is the same stone blank face. If he was doing a Buster Keaton biopic, I would have bought that because his face is just one thing. There's no distinction in that. So I never feel like I'm entering this character's mind I feel like it's another ride I'm being taken on by Stanton Carlisle. And yet I don't know anything about why I would want to do that. Power in 47, you're right. I think that's incredibly astute how it's the dark side of the matinee idol. It is such a perfect crafting of the darkness behind those good looks. And it's, it's kind of, it's disturbing in a way because yes, you can see exactly who he was. Exactly. You have a memory of what he came from because power for me, my introduction was Alexander's Ragtime Band. So I think back to him looking all gorgeous and delightful in the thirties and just being aesthetically perfect and pleasing. And they use it in Nightmare Alley. You see that person behind the good looks and you go, ooh, Cooper, it should work on paper. To me, Cooper is one of, he's like you said, like with a Leo, he is one of the closer things that we have to those matinee idol good looks in the star crop that we have. But there's not that extra layer. I like how you said he's too nice. I agree there completely. As someone who has not read the book, I have to wonder how much of this is change in motivation from the book to the films. We keep saying it lost something in 2021, and I do think that that ties into it. And I think that that is manifest so interestingly in the end of both of these movies. Each of these films starts in a different way, right? With Stanton Carlisle being fascinated by the geek. But in 47, you can't really dive into what the geek is and the horrors of that profession with a lot of graphic detail because it was 1947. So it's all subliminal. And the concept is showing how one becomes a geek in 47 when all they've hold true, their beliefs, their dignity, everything goes by the wayside. When they have lost not just their financial security, but their humanity. It's this thing, but they're not quite man, they're not quite beast. And that is literalized in 47 without seeing it get a lot of that beautiful mood lighting towards the end and really it's on molly who shows the audience in 47 
the broken man that is Stanton Carlisle, because you can't show the horrors of that reality. In the 2021 version, you can. <laughs> and we do to graphic, graphic display. There is actually a chicken that is massacred in this movie. I know that's a Del Toro thing, but did I need to see it? I mean, did I? But I think the last 20 minutes when he finally does devolve into violence and this movie really does revel in the blood and you're shocked by it, when he sits down and has that moment where he says that he was born to be a geek, I wish that all of that had been done with a different actor or some type of change in the writing because I did buy everything at the end. I bought that this was how it was always going to end and that this is where this character was always going to end up. And I thought that in the end, Del Toro stuck the landing, but it's just not a smooth ride. And I don't know if that's a, the fault of the script or if that's the fault of Bradley Cooper, the fault of both of them. I have said from the beginning when Bradley Cooper was cast that I think Leo should have done it. When they first said, hey, we're going to remake Nightmare Alley, I said, oh, I don't really like this and I wish they wouldn't, but if they have to, cast Leo. because. I feel like sort of as we were talking about earlier, he has that sophistication and that charm and the boyish good looks, but he could pull off evil for sure, as we have seen him do in movies like Django. So I think every time I looked at Bradley Cooper in this movie, I did wish it was Leo, especially at the end. I will say I do like how the 21 version ends. And I think that that is a really good lasting image to really focus on the horror, I think, of we talk about the lack of religious subtext in the 2021 version versus the 47 version. But I think that one of the additions that I really appreciated was the Stanton talking to Mary Steenburgen's character, the woman with the dead son, and telling her that your child is fine. He's waiting for you in heaven and all of And when she finally decides to kill her husband and kill herself, it does show the horrors of blind faith and how mentalists like that can really alter the course of events, which as we've seen historically with like cult leaders, and as we're seeing now with the way the pandemic is playing out, you know, it certainly has a resonance, a deeper resonance to it. I really appreciate it, but it comes at such a long point in the movie. By the time the things that work really do have that moment to shine, It's so long. I cannot stress that it's so long that it ends up undoing a lot of the good. I really did also love the horror elements that they inserted. I mean, again, when you find out that Del Toro is remaking it, you know that that's going to happen. You expect it. And I did think the ending was really missing that lovely full circle moment that Ty had the reflection of the same line that he says earlier in the movie when he's rising to the top, he says at the very end is the last line of the film. And in this version, you get that last line, but he'd never said it before. So it's not that nice, really satisfying moment anymore. But I will say at the end, I have to admit, Bradley Cooper is extremely convincing. He is so convincing in the ending scene. And that line does hit home still. The ending for me was another moment where I found myself transported back to 47. As I watched 2021, I just went back to the 47 ending in my head and was like, man, I liked that so much better. How they did that. The final act 
I liked the the violence, the horror elements. I thought it definitely found its footing there. But as the final credits rolled, that was another moment where I was like, man, I, I like Ty so much better. I like I just this that hit home for me better. And to me, if your movie is making me think of another movie, you're not doing something right. So overall, where do we land on the 2021 versus 1947 Nightmare Alley? I know a couple of people have asked me where I think it's going to win Oscars. I know Del Toro's won Best Picture before. I don't know. I'm really out of the loop with this Oscar year, mostly because there's a lot of movies that I dislike heavily that apparently are very well liked by people. But I mean, Stranger Things have happened. If this won Best Picture, I would probably be a little upset because this is also the year Coda's nominated, which I really want that to win. But it wouldn't surprise me. People really like Del Toro. The Academy likes him. So Stranger Things have happened. But overall, as somebody who just comes at both of these movies saying, I like them, but I don't really watch them with any sort of frequency, I would probably watch the original and recommend the original slightly more. It says the same things relatively in a shorter amount of time. I think the actors stick with you. Not to quote Gloria Swanson, but the concept of they had faces then really hits home with the 47 version versus the 2021 version. I think there are elements of the 2021 version that I enjoyed, especially the last 20 minutes and Cape Blanchett, everything Cape Blanchett. But overall, it's a really long sit. And Bradley Cooper just worked in fits and starts for me. So Kim, Samantha, are you guys on the same page? Do you prefer one over the other? I would agree. I would incline to say, I mean, if you're a fan of Del Toro, of Del Toro's aesthetic, I mean, this is a gorgeous film and Del Toro brings his directorial eye and his eye for aesthetic beauty with both barrels. If you like The Shape of Water, if you like Crimson Peak, this might be one that you would definitely be down for. And that was the biggest positive that I had coming out of it. But as an audience member, a classic film person, I will tell you, like I just said a few minutes ago, as I watched 2021, I found myself thinking about how much I liked 1947 more. And that's an inherent problem with this film for me. There was something so unmemorable, something so blah, something so boring that just they didn't stick the landing somewhere. And I would agree it's probably somewhere in the script and the performances. But this, for me, did not work. I would say stick with the original first. I was very worried when I came on for this episode with the super bias that I have, loving Nightmare Alley, loving Trump Power, that if I said the original is so much better, totally skip the remake, I would sound like old man yells at Cloud. <laughs> I, I forgot that you this is the first double features that you've done with us so. that's not true i did do rebecca oh that's right i will tell you I another mean, favorite original you know i will so. say i haven't looked at all of the episodes but i'm wondering what our statistics are for us saying we prefer the original over the remake because i feel like we tend to value the original over the remakes in most Mm -hmm. instances well what i was going to say was i I was very scared if i you know came out and bed like was like the original is 100 percent better that it'd sound old and like a time traveler of course i prefer the original nothing can be really the original for me it's my favorite actor in his best performance that being said 
there are so many strong performances in this remake. There really are. Willem Dafoe. I truly think Molly and Rooney Mara was improved in this. I truly think Kate Blanchett improved her character in this. So like the women are super strong in this and the visuals are strong. I love the thematic element and the mood with the carnival. It's really enhanced in this. So I would recommend it. I could not tell you if it's going to win Best Picture. I have not seen any of the other nominees. This is the only film of 2021 that I watched, literally. That's surprising. That's That's how out of touch I am, you guys. (laughs) Because you and Kate Blanchett are time traveling all the time, so. Actually, I take it back. I watched Till Death. That's (laughs) it. I'm so out of touch. I don't think I know what that one is. Megan Fox horror film on Netflix. So there you go. But anyway, <laughs> that sums up Samantha in a nutshell. <laughs> yeah, so this is really the only film of 2021 that I even watched. So it's hard to say, you know, yeah, this is going to win Best Picture or it has no chance. But I liked it and I would recommend it. I really want to stress, and I know we're all trying to stress, that we should value the 1947 version for what it is. But you could watch both. You could. You could. You can. <laughs> Nightmare Alley is available on HBO Max as well as Hulu. So you can, the, the remake at least, the original I think is on the Criterion channel. It is. Hold on. If you have both services, able to watch both of them right now and tell us if we are right or wrong. As always, you can send your thoughts to us at ticklishbiz at gmail.com. We also have our Instagram if you search ticklishbiz, as well as Twitter at ticklish underscore biz. Let us know where you land on Nightmare Alley. And if you are still trying to help us out with your money, continue to support us via Patreon or tell your friends about us at patreon.com slash ticklishbiz. We would love to get 100 subscribers so that we can talk about why Love Story from 1971 is the worst classic film in the history of classic films. I'm making that claim and I'm sticking to it unless we discuss the movie and somebody on this staff proves otherwise. So patreon.com slash ticklishbiz. Thank you for listening to this episode of Double Features. We will be back next time. See you all then.